0: This is the Hunt Quietly Podcast. I'm Matt Rinella. All right, so I'm here with Dave Strohmeyer and Dr. Christopher Preston. Uh, I'm really appreciative to you guys for coming on. For a few years now, I've had this this niggling suspicion that some things that happen in the hunting sphere are, at the very least, uh, lacking in taste, or maybe rude, or perhaps just might, perhaps outright wrong and unethical. And I know that ethics is something that philosophers have thought about very deeply about going all the way back to the pre-Socratics and, and you guys are philosophers and I'm excited to get your take on some of these issues. So with that, would you mind telling us a little bit about your background and backgrounds and and what qualifies you to, uh, what makes you, especially qualified to adjudicate moral and ethical issues.
1: I don't know that I have any special qualifications to adjudicate moral or ethical issues, but uh, uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks, Matt, for having, having us on. So my day job is a County commissioner in Missoula County, Montana. And, as you can imagine, in the world of public policy, uh, politicians don't always have the greatest reputation, and deservedly so when it comes to ethics. But uh, nonetheless, uh, I I would say that <clears throat> I think that's unfortunate. It, that ought not to be the case. And uh, in in several previous lives of mine, I did study and uh, and do both undergraduate and graduate work in religious studies, philosophy of religion, and environmental philosophy, and actually uh, had the chance to uh, uh, sit in on uh, some of the lectures of our very own Dr. Preston with us today, and I think the the, the topic you bring up is an excellent one because hunting and Wait, the Wait, octav- so you
0: were, you were a, a, a student under, it's okay if I call you Christopher? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. Were you were a student under Christopher? Or I was one of your I mean, teaching assistants. Your isn't that correct, advisor,
1: Christopher? Back yeah, in the Dave, day?
0: You were
2: a teaching assistant. We worked together with about 50 other undergraduate students.
0: Oh, wow. Okay. Where was this?
2: This was here in Missoula at the University of Montana.
0: Okay. But Dave, you got your undergraduate. Not yeah, I, it, yeah. You no, were am
2: right? That's correct. I did
1: undergraduate work at Seattle Pacific University, did a little bit of time back at uh, Yale Divinity School, and then uh, here at uh, University of Montana, uh, focused on environmental philosophy, among other things. And believe it or not, uh, I had a full head of hair back in that day, uh, and uh, I don't know if it was the philosophical... that
0: I like the streamlined look better.
1: Yeah,
0: I it's, it's it's much more user friendly. So, so yeah, the I guess it's it's worth mentioning how you you two in particular ended up chatting with me tonight. Uh, I reached out to Christopher, just cold called him because I wanted to talk to a, a a classically trained moral philosopher about these things, and then through the course of talking, I found out that you guys are friends and, and one of the Dave, your fellow county commissioners in Missoula County, Montana is, is my wife Juanita Vero. So that's how this all came to be. Um, but anyway, I'm interrupting. Did you have more you wanted to intimate about your background? You're, you're also a hunter, which, um, so you know a little bit about, moral philosophy, and you also hunt, which makes you eminently qualified to, it's like I really lucked out.
1: <laughs> I do hunt and, and, uh, I'd love to talk to, uh, talk to you a little bit more during the course of our conversation about R3, because I was probably in the, the, uh, uh, the retain or reactivate category myself, uh, uh at a earlier period of my, Life. I grew up in a family that that hunted, and I've been surrounded by wild game my entire life. But but there was a period of time where uh, it it was on the periphery of my consciousness and and existence. And and I'm I'm back now. And uh, and uh, I it, it's it's kind of an integral part of my life, my family's life, and uh, and certainly my shared experience with. Dr Preston here.
0: Well, great glad to have you back on. Is in it, my viewpoints are quite subtle and outlining them fully any one of them completely take a lot of words. So people like to play because I'm 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 kind of a um an outcast in the I've kind of I've kind of been billed as a bit of an outcast in the community hunting community because of my viewpoints. Um they like to play, hey, I got you with me. And so like just by saying, Well, welcome, I'm glad you're back at it, Dave. Um, they go, Aha, I thought you didn't like retention. You know, (laughs) but that's that's not what I mean. I what I struggle what I oppose is is Nonprofits profits and the hunting industry ginning up interest in hunting um and somehow and, and in magazine articles that have been written about me and my viewpoints they've kind of turned it around into uh matt Ranella just wants to keep it all for himself and anybody that doesn't want to welcome other hunters into the fold is an asshole that's something that's been said about me um, I've helped people learn how to hunt my whole life. Uh, I, I think you kind of would have to be an a hole to, if somebody came to you with the, as a hunter with a legitimate interest in learning to hunt for the right reasons and, and to not, and to, and to not help them. But where the, the where the struggle is with me is, is in ginning up interest in hunting and and even portraying it dishonestly in order to bring people in and sell products. So that's a distinction for me. But anyway.
1: I don't know if you know this, Matt, but on on my screen we're we're looking at uh at each other through Zoom right now. On my screen where typically someone's name shows up, it, it does actually say a hole right next to your frame there, Matt. So
0: <laughs> my Zoom has been hacked. <laughs> Uh, okay. Christopher, tell us about yourself.
2: Yeah. So, um, this is the voice that belongs to Christopher. And as you mentioned, I do teach environmental ethics at the university of Montana, but I want to stress when you teach environmental ethics, that doesn't make you necessarily the best adjudicator of ethical dilemmas. I think we all need to play a role in adjudicating ethical dilemmas. It, It does perhaps when you teach Ethics give you a sense of different dimensions of ethical issues. I mean, that's what you're doing in classes. You're trying to come at an issue from all the different sides, get a good view of what's at stake. So that's that's what I do in my day job. I was actually born in England, and uh, my father and grandfather were both hunters, but I got pretty quickly turned off of hunting in England because of the way that it was um, all private, difficult to get into it was expensive it didn't seem a, a sort of fair egalitarian activity at all so yeah and uh, that's
0: way that's the way things are rapidly going in 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 this country and i mean there's a lot of ways of saying i'm doing this podcast because of x uh that i think are all interrelated but that's one of them right there is i think of i'm trying to address things that are quickly moving us towards a european model of wildlife management so i'm trying to do my small little probably inconsequential part in trying to prevent us from ending up there so anyway sorry to interrupt oh no worries
2: um lived in the u.s uh 30 years now so i'm i'm pretty naturalized to the area um i use the outdoors quite a bit not not my prime focus is not hunting i'm a sort of a part-time recreational hunter and most of what i know i've learned from dave stromeyer uh but i do quite, <laughs> <laughs> quite a bit of um biking and, and cross-country skiing um and i just have an interest in wildlife i i've got a book called tenacious beasts which is coming out next year about oh. wildlife recoveries uh, because there are a few, even though wildlife are under a lot of stress for a lot of different reasons, there are a few recoveries and i I'm writing about what we can learn from those recoveries
0: that's that's awesome I mean, I can see where that's a value, not for for just giving us a sense of hope in addition to figuring out what are the unifying characteristics of a successful recovery effort so uh I found out we we have an acquaintance in common uh Alex Lee at Alaska pacific University. Oh yeah, so I was just in Alaska visiting my brother and turns out that they're they're pretty good friends, and I think at some point i'm gonna uh have Alex on because I wanna make sure that if you talk to three ethicists. Uh, or a county commissioner that's got ethical background, ethic background in ethics, an ethicist, and another ethicist, that you get roughly the same answer.
1: That sounded like the beginning of a bad joke right there. <laughs>
0: uh, <laughs> so um, a- Alex, Alex implored me to ask you about your, your stint in the herring row fishery.
2: Oh, yeah, so when I was sort of fresh fresh off the boat from England, I heard that the thing to do was to go to Alaska in the summer, and I thought, well, that sounds like an adventure, So I hitchhiked up there to Alaska and ended up in Valdez, where I got on a salmon boat. But at the start of the salmon season what what this fisherman was doing was um dismantling his herring row pounds, which were set up in a bay in Prince william Sound so one of my first Alaska experiences was anchoring up in a bay in the most gorgeous part of Prince William Sound and spending three days uh, taking down these floating pounds in which you string kelp uh, and um, you, you catch herring and put them into these pounds for a few days. So they spawn on the kelp and it's just a magical experience. Uh, beautiful scenery, great people, incredible wildlife. So really you're hooked extracting
0: me on the roll from the kelp?
2: So you you let the herring do their thing. Um, so you, you catch the herring and put them into these basically floating net pens. And you leave them there for a little while. They do their thing. They spawn. And then you drop the nets and the herring swim away. And then you've got uh, kelp fronds covered in herring roe. And you carefully lift those out. Uh, and then take them to town
0: wow that is that's cool and then and then you have some there's some process for getting them the eggs off the kelp
2: that the eggs stay on the kelp uh and a lot of that product used to go to japan but actually i should say that 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 fishery um i was there just a tiny bit after the Exxon valdez oil spill
0: oh i just would have assumed it was before but
2: <laughs> no uh, well that the fishery basically shut down pretty much right after the spill and it hasn't reopened since uh-huh. so it's really been an ecological disaster
0: yeah yeah okay so let's let's get into the meat of this thing um i know that that ethics is, is extremely complicated. There's widely varying viewpoints about what even, what the, even the, the the correct approach, uh, for thinking about ethical issues, uh, is, um, so I'm wondering like, what are the, what are the benchmarks as you guys see them? Like, I know that for some people, this utilitarian or consequentialist idea makes a lot of sense. This idea that what we're trying to do is comport ourselves in a way that brings the greatest good to the greatest number of people. And that's kind of a common sense view to me, but then there's other pretty philosophically sound takes on moral philosophy that aren't that like somebody like Immanuel Kant that had these categorical imperatives or these the, the, like one was that one should never lie and that's can be at odds with uh, the consequentialist viewpoint because if there's a murderer at your door wondering where, and you're hiding your friend, um, this is like a classic example. Um, and he asks where your friend is, um, telling him where your friend is. That is certainly not the utilitarian greatest good for the greatest number way of going about it. But, um, he had this, these axioms, this axiom that one should never lie. So I guess when he had sound reasons for it, I've heard it said that if this really happened to count, what he would do is say nothing. But um, what are the benchmarks for figuring out what's right and wrong in your guys' mind? I just want to give the people, I want to give folks a sense of, anybody that's listening to this that has never I mean I barely know anything about what an ethicist does and thinks about on a day-to-day basis. So I want to make sure that we give anybody that's listening a, an idea of just roughly where you're coming coming from when you think about ethical issues, what you're trying to maximize or util, you, uh, what you're trying to what your t- utility function is.
2: First thing i want to say matt is you must have had a pretty decent ethics teacher back in the day
0: oh this is see? this is a weird fascination for me i've been doing self-study in philosophy for over a decade now for some reason that i can't i think it actually i'm a research scientist and i it, i there's ways in which i i feel that it's helped me as a research science scientist to think about philosophy philosophy and um mainly the the main folks that i my kind of my heroes even though that they, they ultimately failed in their quest to uh to define science were the logical positivists I've spent a lot of time studying those those guys and their their um fool's errand to try to uh uh, systematize what science is, but anyway, th- yeah. So I, yeah, it's a sick, this weird sickness I have. That <laughs> in the evenings, in addition to watching MMA on YouTube, I also watch philosophers talk about things on YouTube all the time. That's uh, just,
1: that's a that's a nice uh, uh, bit of diversification for Custer County <laughs> and Miles City. So that's excellent.
2: I'll just add two um, other divisions to what you just outlined, because you did a you did a good outline of, of comparing a utilitarian greatest good for the greatest number view with a more principled based Kantian view where, you know, sometimes your principle will overrule whatever the greatest good is. You, you can't do it because of a principle. So I'll add one more distinction there. And then I want to give another bigger split with a, a, another type of ethics. You, could, you can have ethics alongside a utilitarian and a principle-based view. You can have ethics based on character. So what you have to do is not obey any particular rules, not try and maximize happiness, but you should try to develop your character in ways that are praiseworthy. And you know, obviously, you have to come up with a list of what are praiseworthy character traits, but you know, they might be things like courage and kindness or generosity, something like that. So you can dice, chop it, and dice it uh, along those different axes. But the other axis that I want to put into the conversation is, is: there's a whole other range of of ethics which seeks to push ethics beyond the human sphere. And so, what's right and wrong is not just to do with how you treat people or what your personal character traits are with people. It's to do with what obligations you might have to the non-human world, uh, what what rights might exist or what values might exist in the non-human world. And, and that's really a big uh, kind of cleavage point away from ethics that only look at humans towards an ethics that also looks at non-human animals and landscapes. So that, that's really a p- big part of the conversation too.
0: Do you know the philosopher... Her last name is Noosphom.
2: Martha Noosphom.
0: Yeah, Martha Noosphom. I was just reading. I so there's. Do you know who Brian McGee is? Uh, the a, name. He is a British exists. philosopher, and you can find on on YouTube uh, videos of him. The only reason I know about him is because he he has interviewed like he started interviewing philosophers right i guess after the advent of tv so you get to see you get to you get to hear him talk to some of the most important philosophers in the 20th century um in on these youtube videos and it's just great like he talks with um Martha Nussbaum and he talks with some of the logical positivists, A.J. Ayres. He talks with Hillary Putnam back in the day, who's still active, I think. Etc. 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 But anyway, I just read an article, so that's my the, my first exposure to to Martha. Was I guess she started out as kind of a like a. And I don't know, she was doing, exploring Socrates like that. She was like a, a, a Socrates scholar, but then, so when he was in her, Brian McGee was interviewing her in the eighties, that was what the interview was about. But I just encountered again. There's a article in the New Yorker a few weeks back where it's all about this guy that's trying to get animals standing like in legal suits for things like there's an elephant uh, named happy. That's in a zoo. I can't remember which one. And a lot of people worry that, that it's not uh, a humane environment for that elephant so they're trying to get this elephant elephant jurisprudence in some way and she was interviewed for that piece so i'm wondering if that fits into this school that you're talking about where we have to think about ethics outside of just the human realm is that a way of putting it
2: yeah, absolutely. And, and it, it's broadly known these days as the natural rights movement. Okay. So non-humans uh, would be accorded rights and then would have to have some sort of legal representation.
1: It also boils down to a little as far as <clears throat> the, the notion of respect, what constitutes a good life. And and you can apply that principle with both the humans and the non-human world together. So so take for instance <clears throat> a domesticated animal, a cow, sheep, chicken, pig. Uh, they might they might be living a life that is to some extent pain free as we would. Uh, think of it, but is it a is it a good life to be uh, enclosed in a small diameter cage your entire existence? Is that somehow a better life than uh, uh, an animal that lives in the wild and succumbs to a predator or succumbs to a predator that happens to be a human? And one might make the case that broadly conceived if, if we're talking about at least one way of framing ethics as as pursuit of of the good life or a a a, uh, uh, a form of the good if you will uh, perhaps um, perhaps a life that is in the wild that might entail some degree of pain is a better life a uh, better life well-lived for that creature, that non-human creature than, uh, an existence that is purely utilitarian for the sake of human beings, uh, and, and, and deviates wildly from, uh, what the typical, uh, I guess, uh, uh instincts or, or behaviors of that animal, should it be fending for itself?
0: Sure. Yeah. I mean, if I was, Reincarnate. If I believed in reincarnation, I'd rather, way rather, be wild animal going about my business till the fateful day I experienced a well placed shot from a bow or gun than be a laying hen for four to a crate in some factory farm situation for sure. And
1: and I and I guess I don't want to. anthropomorphize animals or just simply project what I think is a better or worse existence based on my own experience but uh, I, I do think at a very basic level even for folks who might not be articulating their sense of right or wrong good bad evil ethics as we are today uh, during this conversation I, I think I think. Most folks have a sense of the reality that that non-human animals, sentient creatures, do so uh, experience pain, and 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 uh, as that that animal is experiencing it is it's not a particularly pleasant thing. So uh, so I roll back the clock myself. I, as many folks, I had a uh, a period of of my own personal history that I call my my trapper experience uh and uh and so i i when i was in high school and shortly thereafter uh maybe by r- reading mountain man stories from the 19th century thought i would try my hand at at uh trapping fur bears and uh, i was never good at it at all caught plenty of non-target animals and that that i guess that's a totally different sort of Conversation than what we're having here today. But the reality was, I I saw many folks justifying what they were doing by way of trapping as if the animals were not experiencing any pain. Yeah,
0: I'm not, uh, yeah, I'm not, and, open, and uh, I'm not open to that. At, at,
1: yeah, and so, so yeah, it, it's 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 got us leg caught in this trap. But it uh, it it soon goes numb and it, it doesn't feel anything, mm. and, and <laughs> therefore justifying doing this uh, from the standpoint that uh, because well, it's almost as if if there were pain, maybe it would be bad. But since the animal's not really either suffering pain or not suffering as if um, in the same way that I am. It, it's okay to do this. And of course you could layer in the complexity of, of it's, it's one thing, if, um, uh, an indigenous person is trapping for, uh, sustenance and, and, and for, uh, survival, it, it's another, if, if I'm doing this act simply to, I don't know about you, but I don't see folks wearing, um, uh, many, uh, uh, fur coats here in, missoula montana maybe they are in some part of the world but it's it's a it's a luxury item and so sure. is that is that okay
0: yeah and I'll, another one would be if you know we were to parse it i have i'm all about like if you want to trap beaver in a body trap a, uh, a bear or something like that that quickly dispenses the animal and then use the hide and beaver meat turns out to be pretty good and you eat it versus I struggle with a foot trap where the animal sits there for however long waiting for the trapper to come back and then has to dispatch it and I don't know I, I yeah I, I have a even though I'm a diehard hunter uh, I have I equivocate a lot about and I have mixed feelings about some forms of trapping but man we could talk about this stuff for for hours so we probably should move on um
1: well matt Matt, can i just uh just throw in one question i'd love to hear what both of you uh, and christopher think of this so christopher you were talking about one way of framing ethics in terms of of uh, I don't know how to put it. Uh, virtue development, maybe uh, character. Um, yeah, that's really developed. interesting. So, so, so I'm well, answering
0: I guess Dave's question. Throw in some of the big pl- names of the big players in that school, would you, please?
2: Well, the, the original virtue theorist was Aristotle.
0: Oh, no. Okay, so this isn't is not a new idea. <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> the Preston uh, model
1: uh, but I guess what I'm getting at is is thinking about hunting and hunting ethics wh- and and whether or not uh, if we're wanting to talk about encouraging or recruiting new hunters, is it the case that hunting is either a necessary or sufficient condition to, develop some types of virtues and at a very basic level this might go back to each of us personally describing why we're engaged in hunting and why we're doing that as opposed to some other activity but but it brings up a question for me is, is there something intrinsic about the act of hunting that's different than any other outdoor pursuit in that it it really does have the potential to develop certain virtues that cannot be nurtured any other way and i i don't know
0: you You could certainly you want to go first christopher yeah
2: yeah i mean you you could name a collection of virtues that that hunting
0: fosters um
2: so you know patience uh focus uh being very sensitive perceiver of the environment um judgment about you know when to take a shot and, and when not um, care for your surroundings care for your uh, fellow hunters and so you could you could load up with um, half a dozen virtues I think that attend hunting and and probably I mean Dave you're asking is it unique quite possibly in that combination it's unique it, it might be that hunting is that is the one activity that puts these virtues together in this particular way. And and that would make it, um, if those virtues contributed to the good life, uh, a sort of rich, meaningful life, a life of skill, um, a life of of strong capabilities at certain things, then yeah, that would be a very, very, very valuable aspect
0: of hunting. That makes some sense to me. Um, I guess I'd even... Be open to um, it being a sufficient condition um, if, for a good life. Like if you were, you know, as I am, somebody that that's their deal. That's what they do. Um, I'm open so to I, that. But it, so it, I guess, I guess it, it from that standpoint, nece- I hope it's not a necessary condition, though, um, because there's a lot of flourishing human beings out there that don't hunt
1: yeah so I guess the nub of my question is when it comes to uh, I, I wouldn't go so far as to say uh, proselytizing or uh, evangelizing the uh, the uh, the value of hunting um if in the case certainly if, if it was a necessary condition we'd say yeah the, it it's almost a duty upon us to let folks know that that a certain uh quality of life can only be achieved by embracing hunting if it's a, only a sufficient condition then maybe there are other ways in which one could uh, uh nurture certain virtues without hunting but but still i'm left with the question ought we uh, uh ought we to be actually trying to be more active to get more hunters into the fold uh, and i and there's Lots of reasons why we can uh, maybe not go down that path. But uh, if, if, if there's something that's truly unique about this cluster of, of, uh, of qualities associated with, uh, uh, I guess, virtue creating qualities associated with hunting, then how do we balance that against, um, why, why would we not want to uh, uh, get more people on board with that?
0: Well, I'd say be first of all, just pragmatically, we would, is why we wouldn't want to. It, I think that we are at a point where adding more hunters diminishes the joy that hunting brings people because the crowding is so intense. And I don't. I'm not aware of any clinical evidence that making somebody a hunter makes them a better, happier human being. It seems we'd want to focus if we we're going to focus on trying to make people be better, be more, be mentally better, well, more well-adjusted. Um, have make people have more concern for their fellow man it seems like we would want to focus on recruiting them into the tried and true ways of achieving those aims, read a book, do yoga, um, or, uh, soccer recruitment. If soccer gets too crowded, you just build another soccer field. Um, but with hunting, I mean, I live in like one of the, we live in one of the penultimate hunting states. And even here, it's gotten to the point now where, um, it's frustrating. It's frustrating for people. It's frustrating when you go to a trailhead as I have, and there's 55, zero trucks in the parking lot. Um, it's frustrating when you like you go to a place where, you know, maybe you'd see a couple orange vests and now you go out there and as the sun's coming up, you have eight of them around you, which is something that's eight or 10 is something that's happened a lot to my friends around here in recent years. It's just like is is unfortunate as it is, it's like hunting is a precious resource. And I think that there's all kinds of ways to be, a healthy, functioning contributing member of society that don't that don't thank God don't rely on hunting because it's saturated um, so I'd say we should be if we're gonna be encouraging people to do stuff that's good for them and and try to develop their character we should shouldn't be looking at hunting.
2: I want to I want to say something that agrees with Matt and then something that disagrees with Matt. Um, I I think Matt's right is that it would it would be strange to say that hunting is uniquely qualified to nurture certain virtues. Um, it, it you know it doesn't make sense really that that there would be this one activity that somehow was better than all the others and and you know th- those that case has been made in the past, but I don't think it's it's a case that holds water. And so then when, when Matt brings in the pragmatic concern that, well, yeah, you don't want everybody to have to go out and hunt because um, these hunting areas are filling up. I, I question whether any current hunter has the uh, standing from, from which to say, well, look, you know, I'm already part of the crowd, but nobody else can be part of the crowd.
0: Uh, if, yeah, if that's other people- not, I hastened it. To- to add that, that's not what, what I'm saying. Like I said, like I say, I was saying previously. I've helped many people learn to hunt, um and continue to do so. What what I think, what I believe is, we shouldn't be ginning up interest in hunting to try to mint new hunters. And everybody that's doing this has a profit incentive i know very few people if any that are trying to get more people into hunting that in that they're that aren't in some way shape or form making money from it so if 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 the overarching goal is to make people be happier recruit them into something else where there isn't this this huge law of diminishing returns Plus, not to mention the fact that I'm concerned about wildlife habitat. I mean, you could take the most beautiful chunk of public ground in Montana with best habitat you can imagine in terms of timber and meadows and water and just to have it be look like a wildlife paradise, but it's no good to elk deer and et cetera if there's a hunter on every single ridge. So it's just implausible on its face, and it's being done for profit motivation by a lot of people. This this effort to mint new hunters, it, it 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 just it pragmatically it doesn't make sense. Um I I have a lot of love in my heart and concern for the existing hunting community that have been involved in this for many, many, many years and do it for the for the traditional reasons of hide horns, meat, personal satisfaction that you get from, from providing for yourself versus uh, trying to get more people into it so you can sell them products and that they can follow you because you're an influencer and then they want to be an influencer and they want to have sponsors and make money off of it. I just think... That's where I take issue with. So is it the means by
1: which folks are being recruited? So so there's a, kind of an organic approach to hunter recruitment that would be me mentoring the friend of one of my teenage sons who might not otherwise be a hunter who, because I think hunting does provide Hormone-free meat. That it does provide the opportunity to be intimate with our landscape and appreciative of it. Is it that that? Just trying to get at this, Matt. So is it the 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 scale uh, of of the level of influence that media has uh, over this this recruitment process or? I don't know. I just my
0: single like my single simplest statement of this that I've been able to come up with, and for me, this is like a bedrock, bedrock truth for me, is considerations of profit should play no role in inspiring people to hunt. Um I wrote an article about R3 in the final sentence that got me in all kinds, got me in deep shit with lots of people was let friends and family recruit the next generation of hunters as they've done for thousands of years. To me, we have a problem. We have a a major problem with too many hunters and it's causing all kinds of issues with like diminished quality of experience. It's turning it into the European model where, oh, I I ha- I'm a person of means, and I don't want to deal with ten orange vests this morning. I'm going to lease a place, or I'm going to hire an outfitter that's leased a place, and it's turning it from this grassroots thing that was kind of, you know, people got into it for their own personal reasons into ginning up interest in it, hyping the hell out of it. Uh the hunting celebrities and the hunting industry and the nonprofits, because more hunters means more dues paying members and with the nonprofits like BHA, et cetera, et cetera, it's an expectation of their industry sponsors. So they get a lot of money from the hunting industry and those, that those dollars come with strings attached and the strings are, you will recruit because every new hunter, that's like a major marketing opportunity. So to me, it's like, We can't have it that everybody hunts. We're at 5% of hunt, 5% of Americans hunt. If it was something like 15, you, you, you might as well keep, I guess you can keep a gun around or a bow, but you're going to be using it maybe once every five, 10 years when you draw a tag. And none of the people that are trying to perpetuate the increase in hunting, like I say, do it just because, oh, I want people to hunt. I just need strangers that I don't know to get into this, so I'm gonna I'm gonna gin up interest in it. The only people doing it are people that are making money off of it.
2: I think the situation in the U.S. is so different to the situation where I grew up in in England. Simply because for for long,
0: in my view, but
2: (laughs) well, (laughs) I mean, converging
0: in my view, but
2: the public lands here. I mean, you've got hundreds of millions of acres of public land. Uh, which cannot be privatized and they are accessible to anybody with the permit and following the appropriate laws. And that really contrasts strongly with the European situation where essentially you have to find some private land uh, and you have to buy your way into it. And, and that was one of the reasons why I did pick up a gun again when I came over here, is it It was a, just a totally different deal. You could pick up a license For pretty cheap and you could go anywhere that was public and i do think that provides a pretty good buffer against the the um situation that you fear i i don't think it would ever be quite like a european situation
0: right it could just be a thing where you get to hunt every once every five years i mean there's always already a lot of talk uh, talk about that in, in 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 fwp and in various hunting groups, about starting to reduce opportunity to mitigate the effects of crowding. Um, and- well,
1: I grew up in Oregon, and and i I think it, it was at least a part of. I don't know that it had any function to do with with recruitment in that case in my younger years leading to overcrowding but it so much as simple increase in population in the area that I I lived but I did see a a, an erosion of opportunities to hunt either because I was self-limiting myself because I saw more and more folks in the areas that I frequented that made the experience all the more unpleasant or simply clamping down in the hunting regulations such that there were on the east side of the state east of the Cascades very little opportunity to go anywhere other than um, uh, with if if you were to draw a special uh, permit or or tag Uh, you you just didn't have the opportunity to enter into a general season hunt in, in many areas which is not where we're quite at in the Northern Rockies region that we call home, but certainly could head that way.
0: Yeah. Um, I just, I don't know that, I don't know that recruitment efforts, well, okay. So I don't think that, rec, that the R3 movement is terribly effective, but I think of it as a lost opportunity. Like I look at the nonprofits Backcountry Hunters and Anglers, Rocky Mountain Elk Foundation, Ducks Unlimited, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They all have an, a, a recruitment arm. Um, so they 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 have decided that their their they're, their priority is not the existing hunting community, whose experience is being comp- like majorly, majorly constricted and eroded by the increase in crowding. They've decided they're going to, they're going to contribute to that. They're going to, they're going to try to foster that. And, um, I don't know. I would argue that being that there's no evidence that be making, be making somebody be a hunter makes them be a happier, uh, person rather than, doing yoga recruitment then then why and and if yoga gets too grouted you build another yoga studio then why the hell would we do that the only i mean the only reason they do it is money that is though as near as i can tell i don't see people i don't see people throwing their heart and soul into trying to generate interest in hunting unless they're making money off of it. So if you're gonna to try to generate interest in something that makes people happier, why not have it be something that's not such a limited resource? That's where in, in the with the nonprofits, instead of having a recruitment arm, what I think they should have is a be humble arm, a a demonetize hunting arm, a let's try to avoid the European model arm i think that instead of drawing people into something that's already saturated why not focus on some of the the bigger issues um and, and these are some of the things i wanted to, the the ethical issues i wanted to talk to you about um that i think that I'm not i've just touched on them just with that little diatribe um that i the, the ethical issues with what I see going on with hunting. um, and I don't know if we want to go there next or if we want to keep down this vein.
1: I think we just lost Christopher somehow. Oh, he's back.
2: Yes. He
0: you with us, Christopher?
2: Yeah, you both just disappeared. I don't know um, <laughs> I think that, it's that must be my too, connection.
0: I got too passionate my my computer <laughs> overheated because I got too passionate. <laughs>
1: Um, well, what, what, one thing I, I I'd, I'd love to just go back to the the whole hunting as virtue nurturing activity piece because the the counterpoint to that is I, I think we probably all seen the boneheads walking around out in the woods or the prairies or. <clears throat> landscapes here in, in, in our home state that are doing what we would probably consider completely unethical, uh, uh, behavior activities, be it what you described earlier, uh, uh, Matt, as far as, uh, and this might've been before the, the podcast started, but, but some of the the bonehead activities that that are clamping down on private property owners wanting to open up their land to others—be that taking a dump at the uh, sign-in box or <clears throat> cutting fences, leaving gates open, uh, uh, shooting six hundred yards at running antelope, uh, wounding critters—all uh, of this uh, tells me that that simply if it depends how you're defining hunting. Uh, I I would, I would argue that none of that uh, um, really qualifies as what I would call true hunting. It's, it's tromping around in the woods and and shooting a a firearm perhaps. And, uh, and so from that standpoint, uh, if we do call call that hunting, hunting is by no means a, a necessary condition to, Generating virtues any more than the fact that I'm a someone might say I'm a fifth generation Montanan makes you somehow more qualified to serve as an elected official or 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 any wiser than someone who might be a a newcomer to the state. Uh, uh, But having said all of that, I I do think, and this is the reason why I hunt is that that there there is. Something that I found in the experience that puts me in in uh, in touch with uh, the world in which I live, in which no other experience um, really generates that that
0: outcome. So, yeah, I, I agree. But I mean, we're, if if you if you had to be if you had to hunt to be a fully fledged human being, we are sunk. Well, we might be well, sunk that'd, anyway. That means mean, mean seeing 20 hunters for every one we see now. Um, and I, there's got to be all kinds of human endeav- endeavors that are the same way. That the only way you can experience that, the experiences, the, the, the insights the, that you get from some activity are un- are unique to that activity um playing an instrument i would say was is probably one of those or reading a classical piece of literature can have profound impact on your perspective and psyche um so anyway we're beating this one to death let's uh um let's 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 move on because i want to touch on a few of these things that <laughs> We're an hour in and we haven't even touched on any of them, any of the things that I wanted to ask you about. So let's spend a little, and I don't care if we go two hours, That th- whatever you guys want to do, but I just want to make sure that I get to some of these before you say, I'm done with this. I want to get off. Uh,
1: I'm going to need a six pack if we go two hours.
0: <laughs> um, okay. So the first one, the first issue that I want to get your take on from an, from a moral philosophy standpoint, is um, is leasing hunting land. So hunters will lease land from a large landowner so that they get sole access to it. And nobody else can go on it. And this is incredibly common. I mean, there are hundreds of thousands of acres, probably millions. I don't know what the number is, but a ton of acres that are are leased out by hunters or leased out by outfitters that then get clients to pay to hunt on those places. Now, I think this is one of the most brutal things that hunters do to other hunters is they pay for this this exclusive experience at the expense of making everybody else that doesn't want it to be a pay-to-play thing. Like, to me, if I had to pay to hunt, I would give it up. The whole reason I hunt is just still, I say this all the time, but it's still, to me, it goes back to this childhood thrill of getting something, whether whether it's a, it's well it's it's always meat, and maybe a set of horns for the wall, but getting it by my wits. And when you bring money into it, that's gone. Um, with outfitters, a lot of time it's that they are driving you around their private the ranch they lease till they see you see a buck that you want to shoot, and then they pull over and let you shoot it. Or even, or hike you into where they know they are. But it's like to me, hunting. At least fifty percent of hunting is finding your own spot. So, but the, a lot of that, doesn't bear on the what I see was the moral issue, issue. The moral issue is gobbling it all up so you can have this private experience or this exclusive experience, and in 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 the process crowding more and more people into the remaining land. Um, I I wonder about the moral implications of that. And I want to, I mean, one thing I hear sometimes is that ranchers and farmers, a lot of them need this extra income. So I want to throw one little thing in there to have you keep in mind as you answer. And that's that right now in this country, over a third in the recent years of farm and ranch income. So these are the landowners that I'm talking about that are leasing out their property. And they're not who I take issue with. I don't take issue with the outfitter. I don't take issue with the the landowner that leases out their land. I like to have this be squarely on the shoulders of the hunting community because if the hunting community didn't pay to lock out everybody else out, then it wouldn't matter that the landowner was willing to lease out their property or that the outfitter was willing to lease it. I like to keep this internal to the hunting community when I talk about it. And, uh, but over a third of farm and ranch income is taxpayer dollars. These, this last several years. Okay. So you and I, you guys and me and everybody else, um, are paying a lot of money to keep these places in production and we can't hunt. And then some, because somebody comes along and rents it all up. Any thoughts on whether there's, is that's just something I dislike and that annoys me or is, is there, uh, some ethics involved there?
2: Well, I don't want to be a, contrarian too much here but um a private landowner can do what they like with their land right i mean i can i've got a little that's 16. why i'm keeping
0: this squarely on the hunting community But, Is but it in, right for the hunting community to do that to members of its other members of the hunting community but
2: in, i don't really see the sense in which they're doing something to other members of the hunting community i mean unless they are are you concerned about situations where you're making a block management area unavailable because you've
0: switched it from places weren't being leased up. They would, they would, they would have to allow some amount of public hunting. Like, because if you have no hunting, the deer numbers, like in this, this really productive prairie count country we have out here for for example but this is true and in, in much of the u.s are productive egg grounds if you don't have some kind of hunting um the farmer or the rancher gets eaten out of house and home so it's not like either it's not the dichotomy isn't nobody hunts or i pay to hunt or i le i mean nobody hunts or i lease this place it's I lease this up for myself and exclude the rest of the hunting community, or the farmer or rancher is incentivized to enter in a program that allows lots of people in the hunting community to hunt. Or he's more receptive to somebody coming up and banging on the door and wanting to hunt, which he's not going to be receptive to at all if somebody leases it up.
1: So is it predicated on on what what i guess i'm I'm struggling with the scenario in which someone leases their lands is it is is what might what you might see problematic from a from a hunter's standpoint in that matter is it is it problematic from the the standpoint that that Would it be problematic if, if the property owner would not have contemplated doing anything with their, I mean, if if the property owner would not have leased it at
0: all, um, I guess we have to do something else to get some hunting done on the place. Um, there are lots of examples that I'm aware of where, um, where landowners have gotten very upset with the outfitter that's leased their place or the hunters that have leased their place because they're not killing enough does. So it's not that you can't that these places would be off-limits to everyone Um, if it wasn't for somebody coming up with 25 grand and paying the guy every year. It would be that they would then be encouraged, that landowner would be encouraged to let the public on. I,
2: I struggle to see that as falling on the, the the paying hunters' shoulders there. Um you know they're entering into an arrangement with a private landowner. Um I'd have to see some some data to 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 know if that is actually having a direct effect on other hunters who are then not getting into those block management areas and and uh sort of being forced into the public land. But I think you know, the way the market works. Um it, it says that you know that's that's a legitimate use of money for the paying hunter, and it's a, a legitimate use of property for the leasing landowner.
1: Would it be any different if if uh if it was 25 bucks that you were paying to go bird hunting on someone's property versus ten thousand dollars to shoot a bull elk on someone's property? In, in both cases, the property owner is essentially regulating. Who is on his or her property, which to some extent you see that play out with block management, not, not entirely, but, but there are places where there's limitations on how many, you can only have five vehicles parked at this uh, spot per day. And ultimately the property owner will get a check in the mail from Fish, Wildlife and Parks, maybe not as robust as, uh, as uh, uh, the, the scenario that you're painting, Matt. Um,
0: so, so I could see where this might, well, it's, it's definitely not a legal issue. Um, I would fight tooth and nail for the landowner's right to lease out his land. And I would fight for the right of an outfitter to lease up the land it's not a, it's not a it's not a matter of law it's at the very least i I think I'm pretty much set on it being incredibly rude thing to do um like here you go I'm gonna give you i know like people out here this is something that happens they'll come in and hunt block management one year and it'll be crowded because all block management is crowded out here You know, so they'll go up to the rancher and be like, Hey, how about we come back next year? Instead of you getting 15 grand for being in block management, me and my buddies, will give you 25 grand and we'll just be the ones that haunt here. And meanwhile, that rancher, one third of their income is coming from you and me. And I mean, maybe it's, I'm, I'm, I defer to you, Christopher. It's if. If it's not a ethical issue, um, I believe you.
2: Well, no, I remember I don't adjudicate ethical issues. I just try to see different sides to it. Um, and, and the, the issue
0: rude. of it's no, I'm, just, I'm, I'm committed to it being very rude.
2: Rude is um, that's a different, it's a different word to unethical. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it It's not as bad as unethical. Um, but yeah, there is a, a some sort of negative connotation to it, obviously. The the question of a third of a of a farmer or ranch's income coming from the public, that's a different question. It's a different issue. You know, that that sort of yeah, tied up. It just kind
0: of colors it a little bit for me, but maybe I should have just left that out.
2: Yeah, I think it's if if you want to do something about that, then that's to do with farm policy, um, which is a different debate. And uh, you know, take that on on its own terms if you wanted to. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, I understand the the sentiment of rude or inconvenient or impolite or something, but I, I don't think it goes so far as to be unethical. Gotcha. Um, maybe,
1: great. maybe it all it also depends on uh, whether whether any of the actions by way of a leasing transaction spill out over into other public land scenario so if, if we're looking at ethics from the standpoint of
0: well, does a lot of these it, places half the land is public it's just landlocked well
1: that that's exactly my point is is so they go out of
0: block management and then and then and then you lose access to public ground and shit tons of it so because it's not, some guy leased it out and now he not only does he get the to hunt the private land donut on the outside but he gets exclusive access to all of our ground that's in the middle does that do you understand what i'm saying yeah
1: yeah that's exactly what i was getting at is that there there's the potential not necessarily but there could be the potential through the the sort of uh hunting leasing scenario that you're talking about matt of having uh, negative impacts upon others outside of the private property uh owner's uh, jurisdiction be that public land that's landlocked that uh, otherwise is is uh inaccessible and now is only going to be accessible to the paying clients plus there's the fact that in america wildlife is not owned by private property
0: exactly (laughs) that's another wrinkle to this whole thing that i bring up these are our wildlife so anyway that i uh I appreciate you guys weighing in on that one. Let's move on to another one. Um, Okay. So there are hundreds, if not thousands of, there's probably thousands of hunting influencers. So people that are sponsored on social media, and by, by companies in the hunting industry. So they, they portray their hunting lifestyle on social media and generate, generate followings. And just like influencers in any domain, uh, people start to trust them. And they buy their products and um make money off of it and become famous off of it and they are routinely dishonest in the following sense i am personally aware of of m- many many cases where these influencers when things go right they get a good shot on something. They kill it. And before it, the animal, before the meat's cool, they got it uploaded to their Instagram feed or their Facebook feed or whatever. But when they wound something and it runs off and dies and they don't recover it, they don't post anything. And I, When you're a hunter, I think any hunter would say, would agree, tell me if I'm wrong, if you guys disagree with me. this: When you're out hunting and you wound something, you don't recover it. That is the most consequential thing that happened on that hunt. Um, But they leave that out because it doesn't make them look like a professional that knows what they're doing. It doesn't build credibility. It doesn't sell products for them. Um, so they lie by omission, that's mo- how I think of it as lying by omission. Now, thank God that they do, because the alternative is that they show it all. And then that has major implications with the non-hunting public for people like me that don't show any of their hunting to strangers on computers and don't even think you should be showing it. Um, so it's a damned if you do damned, if you don't, if they, sh- if they don't show any of it, they're lying by omission. If they show all of it, they're damaging the re- reputation of, they're, they're painting hunting in a dim light for people that have chosen to hunt quietly and not show any of it. Um, so I'm of the opinion, and I'm open to having my mind changed, like I no longer think it's unethical to lease up hunting land thanks to you guys, and I'm open to having my mind changed here. I just think it's rude. Um, I'm open to having my mind changed here. I'm of the opinion that the only correct course of action is to take hunting off of TV and off of social media and show none of it. What do you think there?
2: Well, I think it illustrates nicely that um, ethics is not just a a deal struck between humans. Um, That distinction I mentioned at the beginning that ethics can stretch to non-humans. Because if you were just social influencing and it didn't have anything to do with the lives of deer and elk and antelope, then uh, you know there's plenty of manipulation in, in all sorts of Instagram accounts and, and social media accounts. It becomes different when what you're doing involves the lives of non-humans. The ethics changes. Uh, and so certainly if you are uh, somehow pretending that that your, your gig on social media is not something that causes pain and, and harm, uh, then that that's deceptive. And it's, it's definitely a wrong, um, to not just the animal that, that you're treating wrongly, but to the people that you're deceiving.
0: I mean, it's an unwitting, you're, 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 you're unintentionally not treating the animal, right? Like you don't want, it. I mean, you, you can do everything. I've wounded lots of elk in my life um, despite my best efforts to not do so. So, you you know what I'm saying? I'm not sure. It's unintentional, but you, you know, that I, that's, I think a lot of these influencers take shots that they should no way in hell be taking because they're so, they're so incentivized to try to generate content that they, that they take shots. They shouldn't, but that's another issue.
2: The, the the unintentional part of the harm is something that all hunters should be thinking about. I mean, that that should be the moral calculus for anyone who's going to take a long shot. Um, but yeah, in, in the influencer case, you you're sort of, you've added a layer uh, because it's not just between you and the animal, but it's between you and your audience. Right.
0: Right. Yeah.
1: And how that ends up manifesting itself is <clears throat> when you, are measuring your success, or as an influencer, portraying success as a hunter as not getting as close as you can to the animal that you're hunting in order to minimize pain and suffering through a clean shot, but rather taking as long of shot as possible and knocking. Yeah, which I, down. I
0: think some of these people back up <clears throat> to make it look more impressive. <laughs> I'm, well, I'm, jo- I'm, 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 jo- I'm joking, but I'm they may not be for-
1: backing up, but they're, they're certainly beginning at, at an, what yeah, I would consider a yeah. completely ridiculous, uh, distance. Oh, and it's
0: it- part of the content. It's part of the appeal of the content. They brag about it. You can go on, you can go on YouTube and the video, the title of the video is something like Joe Rogan kills bull at 75 yards with his bow. Like, that's not something to be proud of, you know, but anyway, that's, that's tangential to what I'm getting at, which is they omit the, the influencer crowd omits when things go wrong. And I think that's immoral. And Christopher, I'm getting the the impression that you kind of agree with me, which is heartwarming. (laughs) It's
2: nice to be on the same side of something. Yeah. But I, but I guess to,
1: to play devil's advocate just, just uh, ever so slightly, and, and some would say, I don't need to play devil's advocate because maybe I am the devil at times. But uh, 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 we all edit our lives constantly, so so uh, we are picking and choosing. And I know this isn't what you're saying, Matt, because, because there, there is a certain disingenuousness to only showing the, the, uh, the uh, so-called successes and not the, uh, the the, the most
0: consequential thing that happens on a hunt is when you wound something. Yeah, it it
1: is, it is damn serious business hunting. And, and, and I would agree entirely that it's disingenuous if you show none of, uh, how things can go awry, but, but at the same time, it's, it's this balance of, uh, you don't just have the camera rolling, uh, 24 seven, uh, nor, nor do any of us who've done any writing, uh, uh, you, you've got to edit things down to, to, uh, uh, a reasonable length and, and, and scope of what it is you're trying to convey and, and cannot be completely exhaustive in, in the, the uh, depiction of, of your experience. So there will be those times of both success and failures that
0: you're editing out.
1: But but I think it's
0: not like editing out a fine detail in my viewpoint, like, Oh, let's, we don't need to worry about that little. It's not like leaving (laughs) out the scene where, where everybody's eating lunch. It's leaving (laughs) out the, by far the most consequential thing that happened on the trip.
1: Yeah. Viewpoint. No, that it's, Point well taken.
0: Um can we, you how about if we try one more and then I'll let you guys get on with your evening because we're at an hour and a half. Sure. For one more? Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So with this influencer craze, hunting influencer craze, there's a lot of incentive to kill for content to kill way more than any hunter can use. Um, some of the top influencers will kill three or four elk a year. Um, some of them will kill as many as 12 big game animals in a year. And they that I'm making their argument for them, they'll they'll say that all the meat gets used, but like with elk, for example, in Montana, the success rate is ten percent, something like that. And uh, I think that the argument that well, all the meat go- got used only gets you so far because don't you think that other people should have a chance to? Make a harvest. Um, plus, I think that killing three or four elk a year, or a dozen big game animals in a year, I don't want to be associated with that kind of blood loss. And I think that one hunter's social media reflects on all hunters. So they're imp- my the people that do this stuff. Their 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 standards get imputed on the rest of us that don't show anything on social media. Um, we have this thing that that I kind of make some sense to me. The North American model of wildlife management um, it's that that's that one of the one of the tenets of that is that wildlife should only be killed for a legitimate purpose. Um, I'm going to read a little bit here of uh, the description of what of that. That I, it's on Wikipedia. If you type in uh, uh, the North American model of wildlife management, under the North American model, the killing of game must be done only for food, fur, self-defense, and the protection of property, including livestock. In other words, it is a broadly regarded. It is broadly regarded as unlawful and unethical to kill fish or wildlife. Parenthetically, even with a license without making all reasonable effort to retrieve and make reasonable use of the resource. So the question to me, I mean, I don't know if the North American model is right or not. There's some, there's some criticism of it and some people think it needs to be improved in various ways, but it's pretty, it, it, it summarizes my viewpoint pretty well. Um, when it's, devilishly hard to get an elk or a deer for some people um is it right for people some pe- these hunting influencers to be killing way 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 more than they need so that they can generate a bigger following get more sponsors to sell more coolers and gear and guns and bullshit um and 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 and, and imputing through reputation on the rest of us. Well, the word greed comes to mind.
1: Uh, I, I think you hit on it a little bit, Matt. In terms of in a in a context and environment where, in some cases, it's it's not all that easy to get a tag to hunt in certain areas. Is oh, it,
0: these guys gobble up tags?
1: Well, yeah, they put in so,
0: tags all over the country every draw in every state they can. Um, yeah. So, that's so, a big so
1: while, while, while it may be legal for them to do so, the, the upshot is that it's taking away opportunities from folks who might otherwise not be able to, or not have an, a great opportunity to hunt at all. And I think you're right. It, it is for the sake of, were it not for needing to film episodes, uh, uh, to sell content, there would be no other reason to be as excessive in, in bagging, uh, <coughs> procuring tags and bagging animals as, as
2: they are.
0: Um, yeah. Christopher, where do you come down on that one?
2: Well, like a couple of the other issues we've talked about, there's, there's the question of what's legal and what's ethical. And, um, you know, you hope that the, what is ethical tracks what is legal. You know, ideally you live in a society where that's the case. Um, though there's usually a little bit of wiggle room between what's legal and what's ethical. And I, I think this, this becomes very personal in terms of your individual, uh, sense of responsibility for killing an animal or many animals, many large animals. And, um, I, I certainly know, you know, like I said at the beginning, I'm not a big hunter. Um I do it uh a little bit uh to to eat and, and for the just the enjoyment of it. But for me, um killing one animal every couple of years is plenty. You know, it's absolutely plenty. And uh I wouldn't see myself in the position of, of killing more than that. Um but I know people people are different. Uh, in this regard and so it, it's this is where sort of personal ethics uh is going to make a difference one one way or another um and yeah the, so the other issue of whether you are actually removing opportunity f- from others could add add a layer even aside from whatever your personal view was about how many big game animals to kill because that that does seem to bring in another dimension.
0: Sure.
1: I'm going to say something that's a little bit heretical here uh, in, in some circles, and, and that is how this relates to Hunters Against Hunger, a program here in the state of Montana.
0: Which is a program <clears throat> that I oppose, just from the outset. But. Okay,
1: I was just uh, guessing where you might be coming from on that, but but I find it, at its at its core... I mean, there's a kernel of of legitimacy to this, and 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 if framed in terms of this is a means by which hunters can help eliminate folks from from uh, being hungry, uh, who who could not oppose that? But how I've seen this, I mean, wait?
0: You you mean you meant who could oppose it? Not who could not, right?
1: That is correct okay but but maybe we can explore the nuances with the uh, the former state oh, I, I'm but,
0: I, <laughs> I, I got stop interrupting you but my mouth is watering to tell you No, why. no
1: no but uh, how I've seen this play out at times is justification for bloodlust in that it, it's not so much that out of a, a sense of duty for one's fellow human beings folks continue to hunt uh, beyond having filled their freezer for the winter uh, because they want to help uh, uh, folks who are hungry no it's because they they love going out there blasting away and it's very crude put crudely and uh, and basically are, are greedy and justifying that behavior and those actions under the, uh, with the pre, uh, uh, under the pretense of, of, uh, helping others. But in, in reality, it's, it's that they, they just want to continue hunting and,
0: uh, and, and yeah, harvest they, the they, get, they get to virtue signal, they get to kill a bunch of shit unnecessarily. And then virtue signal about it and hunting's expensive as hell there. I mean, I am absolute. I am, I have a lot of, I am quite certain that if hunters took all the money they spent hunting for animals they didn't need and use that to buy food, they would buy way more food. So they can't be like, oh, I'd love to quit hunting now. I have enough. But it's my concern for the hungry that keeps me going, that keeps me out there. It's bullshit because they could get more, they could purchase more calories, um, by directing their hunting expenditures towards purchasing food. So that, yeah, Yeah. anyway, that's my take on that. I could, I, I, I would have way more meat in my freezer if I took all my hunting dollars and just went and bought meat. Even now, <laughs> you know, <laughs> even with prices being what they are now,
1: can I throw one more thing, in, Matt? Just as far as I'll, in, I'll sit here all night, you got influencers, and I've been waiting this for this forever. So, and this this relates to the the overcrowding concern that you have, and and certainly it's it's not lost on me how many. More vehicles than I would ever like to see that are parked at trailheads or other locations. But in terms of social media, or not just social media, media that is aimed at at uh, kind of the, the hunting universe of, of folks who are watching this. Um think think about those shows that where and I've I've seen this play out where you'll you'll see the host uh, or the whoever cobbled the uh, the the show together display a, a map of the area that is being hunted. I mean, it, it can be in, in general terms. Uh, I, yeah, that and, was
0: this one was on and, my list, but I, I and, after Christopher shot me down on a couple of the ones that <laughs> I. <laughs> Thought he'd agree with me on, I was like, he's never going to bite on that one.
1: Well, but, well and I, I don't. I, I, maybe it's more rude than, than uh, ethical or it's moral. It's definitely rude. Here,
0: but, it's uh, definitely but, rude. I'm not open to but, it. Not but I rude. have
1: seen folks with with the technology we technology we have go frame by frame to try to ascertain where is it precisely where these folks are hunting at.
0: Oh, and some and, of these
1: guys put up maps.
0: Small well, they, they,
1: maps, they they do, and and so so for me it, it's 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 partially the world in which we live in technologically, uh, and and I don't want to totally diss on technology because I use Onyx maps, and and it, it saved me a time or two from trespassing on someone's property, but I, I think back in the day prior to the uh, uh, the proliferation of social media and tv shows uh hunting tv shows where the only means by which i was able to figure out where to go hunting would be scouring a a a topographic map of of an area in the state or charting your uh, own
0: course as a hunter
1: and and uh and then getting out there myself and flipping a coin as to whether or not this is going to be a good area or not and And so I cannot help but think that, uh, again, it it may be a function more of rudeness than anything that what we are seeing by way of some folks arriving at these trailheads who we would otherwise not want to see out there are doing so because we're leading them via a trail of breadcrumbs to to those precise locations.
0: All right, Damon, I got to, yeah, I got to weigh in on this and maybe get, hopefully get Christopher to weigh in on it too. So I like... The way I like to, to describe this issue that we're talking about right now, where a lot, the logic behind it is equivalent, but it just simplifies it in my mind, is let's say, let's take another human endeavor where there's a law of dimin- diminishing returns. There's a few. Um Downhill skiing is one. Surfing is one. So let's say... There is a little surfing beach and, uh, in, in, I don't know, New Zealand and this group of young folks, they, they hike because I don't know, whatever they have the, the way the topography is along the shoreline or the property ownership or there's no roads going down. They hike six miles to go surf this little cut, this like perfect primo surfing spot. And there's like five or six of these young folks, and they go down. I'm making all this shit up right now, but but the, the logic is equivalent to to what we're talking about with influencers and hunting TV personalities publicizing hunting locations. Um, then a, a new kid moves to the neighborhood. And he starts going down there with them. And then after a while, he starts bringing a camera. And he's filming himself down there and talking about exactly where it is. And it's so great. And he can't believe there's no one else there. And then um, before you know it, there's 100 people down there because of this kid. And these guys that discovered it and showed it to him, now they got to wait two hours before they can go out and ride a wave or whatever would there be are there are there any ethics in that or is that like just the way the ball bounces sorry so there's definitely
2: ethics if the kid is shown that place by the other kids and there's an understanding either explicit or implicit that hey this is this is our spot and you know we don't tell a lot of people about this um, then there's ethics, you know, there's like, there's a community of persons who've agreed on uh, a sort of bond of secrecy about that place.
0: Okay. So then it, then it's not, then it's not morally equivalent to uh, somebody the first, like there's a, okay, so you just demonstrated that I was wrong and that they're not morally equivalent then, because um, in the hunting world, what this is, is you got some group of people that hunt a national forest somewhere. They have a deep connection to it. They've hunted it their whole lives for generations. They even have a history of taking care of the place, volunteering work days to help with trails and et cetera, et cetera. And then, then a guy shows up down there and the first time he's ever been there in his life, he has a camera and is looking to make money off of hunting there. But, um, I guess you'd say that there's not ethical concerns in him um, publicizing the hell out of the place and the place becoming overrun with people because he didn't have an understanding with the group of people that hunted there traditionally.
2: Yeah. I mean, I think unless there is sort of an unwritten rule, but and to some extent maybe there is with things like, you know, mushroom gathering or, you know, harvesting berries or something like that. You know, maybe there's an unwritten rule that you don't go telling everybody about it. Um, but it it doesn't make it strictly unethical until there's a sort of a, a commitment to spe- specific people. And and you know, I have in the last you know minute, few minutes of the of the conversation, I've been thinking about how different it is when you grow up in a very crowded place um uh, you know me growing up in Europe you sort of understand that that you're not going to have places to yourself you know you have to share stuff and in my um 20 years or so in Montana I've come to realize that even on the public lands increasingly I have to share stuff there's more people at the trailhead when I go mountain biking um there's more cross-country skiers and um unfortunately that to me, that's a consequence of this land being public. I'd rather it were public than private because at least we can all get some
0: go at it. Yeah. I have no interest in hunting on private land personally, but so I'm with you there. I just like, to me, it's all about making sure people are with hunting are doing it for the right reasons and they're bringing people into it for the right reasons. So, yeah.
1: Well, I I think the very reason we're at, I think there's value in us and others asking these very questions, even if, if we don't have clear cut, crisp answers, simply broaching the question of, is it, uh, is it impactful in a negative way if we're behaving one way or another, is it impactful to others in a negative way? And, and so it, it always uh, grates me when I've been fishing along a section of stream and someone waltzes up and starts casting 10 yards away from me. Similarly, if I'm out hunting and and someone uh, clearly sees, sees me from a distance and decides to hunt right through the exact area that I'm in without giving it a second thought, that that is negatively impacting someone
0: else. Yeah. But you could argue like, Oh, it's public land and that's just the way it is. And, you know, you'd always say that, you know,
1: and, and that's where
0: ethics is, is never as crisp as
1: one would like. Uh, yeah. uh it, I've often yeah. said
0: like, if you're somebody like a hunting personality, um, or somebody who's trying to bring money and in, people into hunting, so you can sell them products or a hunting influencer, or somebody that works for a nonprofit and you're R R3 advocate for the nonprofit, then I think you should get on social media and tell everybody where you're going to be hunting the following day. Because I mean, you're you're the one that is most invested and most wants more people out there. Aren't you going to be going to the place where you think you have the greatest chance of success? And as you recruit more people and get them into that, don't you want them to have that same hot height like maximum chance of success? So that you'd want them to go where you're going, the spot that you think is best. And then if they get there and show up in the trailhead when you're there, shouldn't you give them a head start? You know? It's like, why? I mean, if you don't do that, then they could end up anywhere. They could end up um, severely compromising the experience of somebody that doesn't even think we should be recruiting more hunters it should seems like it should impact people that are striving for more hunters disproportionately. You guys have any thoughts about that one
1: christopher your your lips are quivering, I can tell.
0: It's again it's like it's outside the domain of ethics, you know. It's like I'm not gonna
1: I mean for me, I love this. This boils Christmas down to the, the the golden rule. I, that might be seem pretty simplistic, but uh, regardless of what sphere of of, uh, of life we're talking about, there's there's value in, in thinking about how your actions whether it's the effect of social media, media, or or simply uh, how you're interacting with folks in the field, how that impacts others and whether you would want those folks doing the very same thing to you. And if the answer is you don't care, maybe yes, then that's a different story. But
0: Yeah, I like the golden rule one because I have many, many friends, and I'm one of these people that don't crowd other people's hunting. We do nothing in our hunting life. Matter of fact, we do stuff to decrease crowding. I have a little group of friends that are working on access issues out here. We're starting to do some work projects to try to get more ranchers and farmers, like doing work on ranches and, and stuff to like encourage them to allow some public hunting. So here we are operating in the background trying to uh, not only do we not crowd other people's hunting, by trying to draw more people into selling products. Um, but we're trying to, we're trying to reduce the crowding. So what the golden rule thing is, I don't treat other people. What is this? Treat other people as you wish they would treat you. So I'm treating other people, um, in like, I don't want, I, I don't want them to crowd my hunting. So therefore I'm not going to crowd their hunter, Hunt, their hunting. But a social a social media hunter or a TV hunter can't say that. They, they they don't want people to crowd their hunting. They put it in for special draw tags all over the U.S. so that they're the only one hunting the unit, you know, because it, they got a 1% chance of drawing it. And if they draw it, they're the only one hunting in there. Or they're hunting their friends and fans' private ranches, or they're flying up to fil- remote filming locations in Alaska. So they don't have to, they, their hunting is never crowded. They don't have to deal with the crowding that they're creating for the rest of us. So I, I don't know. I think if the golden rule is the benchmark, then I'd say that <laughs> that um, hunting influencers and hunting, hunting TV people are definitely not living up to the golden rule. They create crowding for the rest of us so that they can make money. And then they don't hunt those places. They hunt their friends and fans, private places and put in for every draw in the country and fly up to Alaska. Maybe so. (laughs) Yeah. Anyway. Holy cow. they have given you guys all my, all of my, um, Greatest hits. All of,
1: <laughs> You're out of ammunition.
0: <laughs> all of my, all I've given you all of my major rants in one in one two hour conversation. I'm a little embarrassed that like I said eighty percent of the words in this discussion. Um, so I apologize for <laughs> great conversation. Uh, no apologies necessary at all. Um, but uh, I've been really excited about talking to you guys and, um, and believe it or not in between my rants, I got a, I got a lot of, of what you had to say and Christopher, your points and, and days, your points about, um, about, you know, other people's rights to be in these places and the value of encouraging them to be there. You know, it's good to have that stuff reiterated to me um, because I get stuck in my own little mental bubble. You know, it is a balancing act and I don't know what the answers are. And I'm trying to, I'm trying, I'm very much trying to keep an open mind and be willing to change my mind as I go through this. But, you know, I'm not, I'm trying, everybody that's got a voice in hunting, this is something I say a lot makes money off of it. So I'm not going to make a dime off this. I would be, it'd be heretical if I did. Um, so I'm just, I guess in, in portraying my points, the way I'm portraying them, they're so at odds what, with what you'd hear on any other hunting podcast. But I just think that somebody has got to champion these ideas if we're gonna to come to a, ba- a a good balance with all this stuff because everybody every other podcast is run by people that make money off honey which skews the per you know skews the conversation so um there's a way in w- there's a sense in which I like push against the zeitgeist intentionally just because I'm the only one doing it if that makes sense I'm the only one saying, go running contrary to the, the, to the, um, mainstream viewpoint. So.
1: A voice crying in the wilderness as it were. Yeah,
0: <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. So, well, we've run two hours and again, I, r- I really appreciate you guys taking the time. Any other thoughts? No, thanks for doing this, man. Appreciate yeah, it. it. It's been fun. I appreciate it. Um, and you know, as, if it generates any thoughts, I'm, we don't have to do another podcast. But if anything comes to mind after covering this much ground, please reach out to me because I really, I really value your guys' perspective. So. You all bet. Right. All right. Work on that six pack, Dave. Okay.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I am. My throat is as dry as a rattlesnake <laughs> after that.
0: So, all right. You guys have a good night. Thank all you right. So much. Thanks. So Thank much. you. Bye. Goodbye. Bye.